Okay, good morning everyone. We are back in the book of Exodus this week, which Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Uh, if you have one with you, don't worry if not, uh, the words will appear on the screen as if by magic in a few moments' time. Uh, we've been working through uh, the Exodus story, and it's one of the most vivid and powerful stories, um, not just in the Bible, but I think that you could ever come across in your entire life. It's just this gripping narrative that sucks you in um, and tells such a compelling picture of, um, of basically who God is and how he loves us, his people. And we're about halfway through, actually that's not quite true, probably about a third of the way through. Uh, we're in Exodus chapter 15 through to 17 this week. Uh, and the first kind of 14 chapters of Exodus tell this story of the Exodus as the bringing out of the people of God, the Israelites, where they were in slavery. They were being oppressed uh, in Egypt, by Pharaoh, and it tells this wonderful story about how God delivers them, about how God leads them out. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, uh, Derek was talking about the kind of the, the, I guess the chapter which is kind of the, the, the sort of the hinge between that section and the next section of the story uh, and of Moses' song and how he declares who God is and what he's done. Um, and where we pick up the story today, basically we're going to look at three kind of stories that all, all hold together. They're kind of like three scenes from, from a movie. Uh, and we find that the people of God are, uh, have been taken into uh, what the Bible describes as the wilderness. Uh, how they've been, they've been brought out of Egypt, they've gone through the Red Sea, and now they're on to the next stage of their journey uh, and as the story goes on, the kind of tension builds and builds to this climactic moment that we'll come to, we'll come to later. And if, if the first part of Exodus is almost like the, their, their birth, it's the people of God uh, kind of being born into the promises of God. And then as we go through into the story, we're now kind of into their, almost their, their infancy, their, their childhood. We see how God's beginning to, to grow them up beginning to change them. And hopefully as we go through it, we'll see how God grows us up and how he changes us. The Bible uses the word sanctification about he, how Jesus is at work in us to make us more like, like him. So what we're gonna do to start with, although we're, we're gonna study from Exodus 15, 22 through to 17, verse 7, which is quite a long section. So what we're going to do to begin with is we're going to read the first, the, the last bit. So the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 17. So these will appear on the screen behind me and we'll read them together. Well, you don't have to read them. I'll read them and you can follow with me. It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin, which is about horrible as place as it sounds, right? The wilderness of sin, that's not really your average holiday destination, it's not a beach by the Mediterranean. Not that I know of anyway, uh, where were we? Moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord 
and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that 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 question can often appear in our lives. Is God with us or not? And we thank you, we know if we, if we read our Bibles, we know the answer. We know now that we have you, Jesus, with us, Christ in us. And we want to hold on to that truth and we want it to let it come alive in our hearts. And we want to let the, the wonder of your salvation love break into our lives and change us deeply. And we invite you this morning, God, to reach into all the deepest, darkest places of our hearts and to change us, because we want to be more like you. And we've tried to do it by ourselves, and it hasn't worked. So we say, God, be at work in our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. About seven or eight years ago, Uh, When I was living in England, I was called to do jury duty. Everyone in the UK um, gets called. You might get it uh, once in your life or twice, or it might never happen at all, but your name gets picked at random, and you have two weeks where you have to go and sit on a a jury in a court case. Uh, And over two weeks, I actually sat on three different court cases. Uh, One was some motorcyclists who didn't know how to ride bikes. Another was a guy who tried to defraud a company by setting up a fictional bank in South America. It's as stupid as it sounds. And then the third was a drug dealer who was the most incompetent drug dealer in the whole world. So they were quite easy cases, really. It's like, well, these guys have been a bit, bit stupid, so end of story. But what you get in, uh, it's fascinating being involved in that, in that court process because you see, you know, the defendants are brought into the dock and charges are made against them and there are arguments back and forth, the defense and the prosecution, and ultimately the the jury makes a decision, uh, or in some countries the judge will make the decision, and then the the punishment is brought. This is what's gonna happen to you. Or, of course, you can go free. Those are what happens in in this story, and it was a fascinating, fascinating, although sometimes horrible thing to see 
what can happen in people's lives, but it was still a fascinating insight. And what we get here in these seven verses, chapter 17, at the, the, the kind of the end of the segment we're going to look at this morning, is we kind of see the, the people of God are putting God on trial. That, that's, that's what's happening in this section that we've just read together. We see twice in this little narrative, the episode is called a test, that Moses says to them, why do you test the Lord? Why are you testing God? What are you doing? And this is what's happening. They're, they're charging God with an offense, basically of, of murder or attempted murder. They're saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us here and to kill our children and all our animals? So they bring a charge against him. This is what you've done. And then they even threaten a punishment. Moses has to go to God and say, what should I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now to stone someone in, in, in the time when this was written, would be, that would be uh, the punishment. That's a death sentence. That's what would happen if someone was convicted of a crime and their punishment was death, they would be stoned to death. So Moses is saying, look, they're, they're, they're ready. They've, they've, they've put this case up here. They're charged against us. They've decided on a punishment that they're going to stone Moses. That's what they're threatening to do. So Moses then forms a jury. He gets the elders together, and God tells him to go to this rock and strike the rock. You know, like a judge would strike his, what do they call it, the hammer thing on the lump of wood thing. Bang! And that's what's happening. Sorry? The gavel. Thank you very much. They're putting, the people of God are putting God on trial. For everything that's happened, and we need to look at the moment at what's kind of brought them to this point. It says they're grumbling, they're quarreling, and they've decided that enough is enough. Someone needs to pay. So they put God on trial. Which, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, is... It's kind of remarkable because uh, we're only in chapter 17. You know, only a few chapters before we see God sovereignly and remarkably performing these incredible wonders and then leading the people of God through the Red Sea. No one in all of history had had such a vivid experience of God's power, and yet it seems only in a matter of months they're saying, God, where are you? Who are you? Why are you so horrible to us? Why are you doing these things against us? How can, how can you go from that remarkable experience to putting God on trial? What has to happen to, for, that to take, for that to take place? So what we'll do is we'll go back to the beginning of the story, and I'm just going to read to you uh, the last few verses from chapter 15, so this is from verse 22. So she's back at the beginning of this little segment. It says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So they've crossed over the Red Sea, they're into the next bit of their journey. They went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Sounds familiar. And he says, And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log 
He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So this is kind of the first of these little scenes, which is similar to the third one in that they arrive somewhere, they're in the wilderness, three days, they've got nothing to drink, so they grumble, they complain, they have a bit of a moan. Uh, Moses then cries to God and God provides to them. Uh, And as we go through this story, we'll see again and again that the people of Israel are very good at grumbling. You know, they're professional moaners. That's kind of what they're really best at, is moaning and having a a good grumble, a good complain. But perhaps the more startling thing, if you read through this whole passage is that although it ends with the people of God putting God on trial, actually what you find in this story is actually that God is testing the people of Israel. It says that God put them to the, to the test. God's testing them, which might seem a bit weird to you, and that's an important question to ask is, does God test us? Is that what he does? It might be a bit of an uncomfortable question for you. You might be here and you might not even believe in God at all or you're just new to Christianity, you're just exploring. Maybe you've been a believer for many, many years, um, but this still might be an uncomfortable question. God tests us. What's, you know, God, he's a God of love. He's a loving Father. He's a God of blessing and of favor of rich grace, you know, we grumble, yeah, of course we do, but God blesses us anyway, that's what he's like, which is true. Uh, And we hear test, and we think of exams, you know, school, and uh, I don't know, maybe you're one of those bizarre people that enjoys exams, but I think most of us probably don't. You know, you hear exam, test, trial, challenge, and it all sounds pretty pretty horrible, uh, pretty negative, but yet, it says in Hebrews 12, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, as Hebrews quoting from the book of Proverbs. Which there we get a few other words introduced to us that are even worse than testing. God disciplines us. God chastises us. They're not very nice words, are they? They don't fill you with joy. I'm I'm gonna be chastised today, yes! It's not particularly exciting. And you might think, I'm not sure this is the sort of God that I wanna follow. It's not very popular. And the truth is that God does test us. He does discipline us. He does chastise us. But always for a reason. It's always for a reason. It's because he loves us. 
He loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are, but then he loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us as we are. He wants to change us more and more into his likeness. When I was 18 years old, I brought my first car, and it was, oh, it was a beautiful machine. It was a, it was a red Vauxhall Nova, or here it would be an Opal Nova 1.2i. I don't know what the I meant, but I was very excited because it made it sound kind of sporty, and it wasn't, but I loved it. The problem with this car is that the previous owner had had dogs, and the dogs had left a rather unpleasant smell in the back. My friends used to call my car the vomit wagon. <laughs> yep, because that's the kind of odor it had. And although I loved this car dearly, I was not going to just say, oh, well, I love this car, so I'm just going to put up with the smell. I thought, no, we're going to clean it and we get rid of the smell. So that's what we did. We cleaned the car. Actually, no, that's not true. My mum cleaned the car, but there you go. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, mum. But God does exactly the same with us. He loves us just as we are, but he loves us so much that he's going to change us. And it would be great if it could all happen just by once, that it's like a, you know, a scene in the Matrix. You kind of just go and get sort of reloaded and get some new software added in, and all of a sudden you, can, you know karate or whatever, but it doesn't work like that. God changes us little by little, moment by moment, and he often uses challenge and difficulty and testing to, to change us, and that's what's happening here in this story. It says in 1 Thessalonians, for this is the will of God, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the will of God for your life, is he wants to change you to become more like him. That's his will, that's what he's gonna do in your life. We can often pray, God, what's your will? What do you want me to do with my life? What's your plan for me? And he says, well, I'm gonna make you more like me. That's what he's gonna do, that's what he is already doing in your life. A preacher, English preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones said, God's great concern for us primarily is not our happiness, but our holiness. So often we read the Bible and we understand the gospel in a very individualistic fashion. We think God just wants to make me happy. And God does want you to be happy, but primarily he wants you to be holy. He wants you to, to be like him. And he's going to change you and he's going to mold you to make sure that happens. And it's important, therefore, that if God's going to test us, if he's going to change us, that we know how to go through that process, that journey. And the people of Israel can kind of help us to do that. So we're going to read the next chunk now together from uh, the start of chapter 16, the first 12 verses of that. It says, they set out from Elam. And Elim was the place, if you remember a few months ago, where there were kind of palm trees and water, and it was kind of paradise, basically. But they left there, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. So they've gone from basically paradise in Elam to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt... And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they did what they do best. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They've completely forgotten that in Egypt, that their rations were limited, they were treated as slaves and they were brutally oppressed and now they're looking back on it with their rose-tinted spectacles and saying, oh, we had all this food and it was lovely. And they're wrong. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord's. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near me before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the clouds. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So we, what we're going to do now is just look at a few ways that the people of Israel and often us, um, how they, they fail to respond to these tests and help us to hopefully see how we, we can respond. And the first way that they fail to respond is that they trust, they put their trust in their circumstances. They look around them and say, well, this is what's happening, so therefore there's a, there's a problem. They don't put their trust in God, they, they put their trust in what's happening around them. And, which is a fair response, you could say. They've been three days in the wilderness with no water, as it says in that passage in chapter 15. Now they've been taken out into the wilderness of sin and they don't have anything to eat. You could imagine they'd be feeling a little bit like, well, you know, if I don't have anything to eat, I don't have anything to drink, we've got, we've got a problem. But even though God has led them out on this journey, they, they fail to trust in him and they look at their immediate problem around them and that's what they use to dictate reality, basically. And we do the same. We decide what's real based on what we see around us, as opposed to the promises of God, of who, who God is. But yet, when we have a problem, so often we fail to look at God, and instead we just base our reality on what we see around us, on the problems that we face, on the challenges before us, but all the time, God is always graciously calling us to, to trust him, and not our circumstances, but to trust him every time. 
So it's the first way we can fail to respond is to trust our circumstances. The second way is to grumble. Uh, and as you see, that word appears a lot, 10 times, just in these few chapters. They grumbled. And complaining, to have a, a, a complain um, to God isn't necessarily a bad thing. Lots of the Psalms are about complaining, lamenting, coming to God with our troubles and our woes and our difficulties. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's a perfectly wonderful biblical thing to do, to come to God and say, I've got a problem, please help me. I remember once with my wonderful red Vauxhall Nova 1.2i, I was in a difficult season and I was frustrated. So one evening, I got in my car and I drove out to uh, up this hill. Um, For those who are Dutch, hills are these big kind of mounds in the ground, like (laughs) crazy things. I drove up this hill and I got out of my car. I don't know why I did it, because I I, I wasn't high enough, so I, I stood on the roof of my car and, and I shouted at God. I don't know why, it was silly. Uh, and, and in the process of doing it, I realized how silly I looked. Just a man standing on top of a car, shouting. But that's okay. To come to God and complain is a wonderfully biblical thing to do. We can do that. But the problem is there's a, there's a difference between reaching the end of yourself and coming to God and saying, why is this happening? There's a difference between doing that and just kind of moaning. You know, not, not to God, but about God. <laughs> you know, we don't really pray. We just, maybe sometimes just in your own hearts. Or maybe even you go to a friend and you say, God's let me down. You just have a moan inside yourself. And that's what the people of Israel are doing here. They're not coming to God and saying, why? if you notice time and again in this passage, they don't go to God and say, well, you've done this. They go to Moses. They, 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 want, they just want to have a moan. They want to have a, a grumble. Uh, and complaining is okay, but grumbling, we should be wary of that. Thirdly, they, they fail to see God for who he is. Because you might have missed it, but there's this beautiful moment in these passages here where, where God reveals him Self to them. He appears to them in this cloud of glory. This is the glory of God before them that they would have visibly seen with their eyes. The glory of God in their midst, they can see him, they can see God. It's wonder, and yet they, they miss it. They seem to forget it. They, they move on so quickly. You know, the visible manifestation of his glory is God's. This comes in this cloud symbolizing God's presence and his protection, the same cloud that led them out of Egypt in chapter 14, the same cloud they'll meet in the temple in chapter 40 of Exodus, the glory of God, and yet they miss it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. They, they, so quickly they, they move on. And part of the reason that we go through these tests that God disciplines us is God uses difficulty to make himself known to us because he wants you to know him and sometimes he kind of puts us through challenges and difficulties but at the heart of it he's saying I want you to know me I want you to see me and so often we can miss it and we can we we can drift off and worry about our own concerns 
but all the time he's, he's calling us out of our empty delusions of grandeur and our self-sufficiency, our self-trust. All the time he's calling us out of those things. He's using difficulty to rip us away from our dependence upon ourself to say to us, trust in me. He's trying to make himself known to our hearts. But even by verse 20, they're not listening to Moses anymore. By verse 28 of chapter 16, it says, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? They forget. They fail to see God for who he is. The next one is they, they misdefine discipline and they see it not as discipline but as punishment. They think that God's just punishing them. As we see in the start of 17, it says, the people thirsted there for water. They grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children? They just think that God wants to punish them. And in the midst of trials and tests and difficulties, it is so easy to forget who God is and forget his grace. And so often we just, you can either come to the point where you think maybe God doesn't exist at all, or you think he does exist, but he's a harsh God that wants to punish you. And God, he's not, he's not like that. Because I guess we almost have this default position that we almost think that Christianity is a bit like karma. You know, I do good and good things happen to me, and if I do bad, bad things happen to me. And you have to challenge your heart because we can so easy, so easily just slip into that way of thinking. I've just had a terrible week, so I can't come to God today. I can't pray. I can't expect him to do anything good in my life. Why would, why would he's, he's seen, he's, look at what I've done. Why would God bless me? Surely he's gonna punish me instead. These things that I'm going through, this situation, it's happening because I've done these things. God's just trying to, he's trying to teach me a lesson, but not in a good way. He's trying to just pound me down and hurt me and punish me. But we have to remember what it said there in Hebrews earlier that says that God disciplines his children, his sons and his daughters. It's really important we understand that. God disciplines the one whom he loves. So actually, if, if you think about it that way, if you're going through a season of difficulty and trial, maybe as I'm speaking, you feel like, yeah, yeah, God's testing me right now. Well, then you're blessed. You can say, well, that's proof that God loves me. There's proof right there. He disciplines the one whom he loves. He's, as painful as it may sound, he's showing his love to you. And it's not, we don't have to sort of pass the tests to somehow become his children. We already are. He doesn't discipline us so that we might become his sons and daughters. He disciplines us because we already are his children, because he already loves us, not to earn his love, but because he loves us, because he wants to change us. He's at work in us already. 
And because we're already one to him, he has no need to punish you because Jesus was already punished for you. He, he bore the wrath. So why would you assume that you have to? You don't. The price has been paid already. The next one is they, they fail to see God's care. There's this beautiful couple of verses in Deuteronomy where it says, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Because we can get angry with God and frustrated. Why have you abandoned me? What, why is this happening to me? Why, why is this situation taking place? And that's what, the, that's what they're moaning about. That's what they're grumbling about. They're getting angry and frustrated. Why is this happening to us? God, where are you? And yet it says here in Deuteronomy that all the time he was carrying them. Isn't that beautiful? Just an astounding verse that God's carrying us, just picks us up. So if you're going through a situation where you feel like, God, where are you? <laughs> you have to realize he's actually carrying you. They fail to see God's care. And the next one is they fail to see that trusting God is often a, it's a day-by-day experience. Because what he does, we don't have time to read it, but through the, the rest of chapter 16, we see how God provides the quail, the meat to eat, and the manna, this bread, provision from heaven. Manna literally means, what is it? Because it came down on the ground, and they looked and said, what is it? And then they called it, what is it? Manna. I just don't know what it is. We'll just, call it, we'll just call it, what is it? You know, it's a bit like the baby comes out and you say, what is this thing? And then that's just what his name is from now on. You're not Matt or Dave, you're just, what is this thing? So that's what they called it. Uh, but they, it, it was given to them day by day. And then on the sixth day, they were to, to, to gather up enough so that on the seventh day, they could rest. It's, it's uh, mirroring how God created the world and how God teaches us to have this Sabbath rest but so often we we what we want from god is is we want a kind of a, a, a kind of a big hit like a big provision of grace like god here are all my prayers is everything i need i want you to do it now like now and we fail to see that how god cares for us most of the time is just the day by day working of his grace in your life, that 95% of it you're not even aware of. That the Israelites didn't see how God was carrying them and we often don't see how God's carrying us. We fail to see his regular grace and care. Even in those seasons where you feel distant from God, he's still intimately caring for every detail of your life. He knows it all. He's at work in all of it. He's blessing you through all of it. And one of the, the main reasons for anxiety, which is a huge issue today amongst many people, 
many Christians, we get anxious. And often, time, not all the time, but sometimes the problem is because is we're looking into the future and we know we've got a big challenge ahead of us and we want God just to fix it so you don't have to worry about it. God, if you just solve this issue, then I'll be happy. But we fail to see that, that maybe God's using that challenge to do something in your life to help you not to be anxious. And the Bible tells us, don't be anxious. It also tells us, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough worries of its own. Enjoy God's grace today. Enjoy his day-by-day blessing and provision for you time and again. We had a, a, <laughs> we've had a lot of bikes stolen, partly sometimes because we forget to lock them up. But in the last couple of weeks, we had two bikes stolen from outside our house, and they were both bikes that we probably were going to get rid of sooner or later that we just left in the rack to our kids' bikes. And it was a bit frustrating because one of them we could have fixed up and the other one, <laughs> the tires were very flat, so they didn't get very far, but the bike's gone, so I don't know what they did with it. Um, and to be honest, I didn't even, maybe Joe did, I don't remember, but I didn't even really pray about it. I was just a bit frustrated. Ah, these bikes are gone, how annoying. But then in the space of two weeks, We've had three bikes given to us, which is significantly better than the two horrible ones that got stolen. And I didn't pray. It's just a little thing, but it's just God's provision is just, it's not dependent on whether you've kind of mightily fought it out and battled in prayer, although we should do that. It's a wonderful thing to do, but God blesses us anyway. God, he cares for us. He knows that we didn't need those two rubbish bikes. Well, actually, because our kids are getting bigger, and it's annoying, isn't it? Kids keep growing, and got to buy new shoes, and new clothes, and new bikes. And they need some, some better bikes, and we've got some better ones. Next one is, they develop this kind of spiritual amnesia, as in they fail to remember. Because God sets out for them this, this pattern of, Six days and on the seventh day, on the sixth day, gather up enough that you can, and the seventh day you can rest. Uh, and they don't. They don't. They fail to do that. Um, and we do the same so often. Is that part of the reason that we struggle in these times of testing is that we, we forget who God is and what He's doing. And you forget just because, well, you're too busy. You're trying to do too much, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to the rest of you. But we can develop this spiritual amnesia just because we're too busy, and we fail to see that God's at work because we've, we haven't stopped. That's what the Sabbath is about, is coming to God and just resting and remembering who God is. And if you don't rest, then you don't give yourself much chance to remember there's a, a few of us, uh, a few of us guys, we gather here on a Wednesday morning to pray. We get here quite early and we start the day with prayer. And uh, a few months ago, uh, we, we would, I was cycling here and I was late, so I was cycling as quickly as I could and I arrived kind of sweaty and out of breath and a bit grumpy because it's early in the morning. And then I, uh, just as I'm looking at the door, I'm speaking to, to, to Rich, who's also cycled there to pray, and he says to me, what a beautiful morning. Isn't it great to be up so early and I was cycling here and, and I was enjoying just the mists forming, the sun just breaking out through the mist. It's amazing, wasn't it, Matt? 
And I said something like, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. But, but inside, I can't remember what I was thinking inside. I think I was probably just short-circuiting, like uh, uh, just, you know, my body was kind of broken, just trying to get itself back alive again. But I failed to enjoy the beautiful morning because I was just too, I was just late and I was rushing. And we live our lives like that so often. We, we fail to see who God is and what he's doing in our lives just because we're rushing from one thing to the next and we're not taking opportunity to Sabbath and to rest. And this spiritual amnesia, this kind of spiritual forgetfulness that can develop because we're not reflecting on who God is can kind of lead to just a place of spiritual depression. We just, in our faith, we, we kind of hit a low and we don't know how to snap out of it. And we just conclude that God's against us and that's what happens here, is that after all these different steps, what happens eventually, as we already know, is the people of God put God to the test. It says in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, as Psalm 95 is looking back to Exodus 17. When your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. They had this spiritual amnesia, they'd forgotten, they'd not responded to God's testing, so they put God to the test. That was, that was their response. And we find in chapter 17, they, they, first of all in verse two, they demand God's provision, and then they deny God's protection, and they doubt God's presence. Because um, you might think, well, I've never put God on trial. What does that even mean? But often we have because we, we demand his provision. We say, God, if you don't do this for me, then I'm not even sure if you're real. Have you ever thought that? You're putting God to the test. If, if this doesn't happen, then I, I don't think you even love me. If you really love me, like it says in the book, then these things would work out in my life. And when your heart is saying those kind of things, you're just, you're putting God to the test. And we can do that. We, we, when, in seasons when God is testing us, we, we try and turn the tables and we put God on trial. If you're really sovereign, if you're really in control of all these things, then you're gonna to need to prove it. That's what we say to God. And that brings us back to this courtroom where we see God on trial. And you think, well surely our great, powerful, sovereign God, you know, he's the judge, so he can just throw out the case. Just dismiss it, like, come on silly Israelites, pull yourself together, just away with you. But that's not what happens. Because it should be the people who are the ones on trial here, they fail God's tests says that God was going to test them to see how we responded, and they failed. Surely they should be put on trial, but instead what we see is we see Jesus on trial. You think, well, I might have missed that. Where was Jesus in the text? I don't remember Jesus' name being mentioned. But you see, all through this story, Jesus is he's riddled all the way through. You see, he's, he's this water that becomes sweet, and flows from the rock. 
It says in John 7 that, that out of Jesus will flow a river of living water. He's this manna from heaven. It says in John 6, 6 that Jesus is the bread of life. He's your provision. He's there in the cloud that they see in the middle of chapter 16. It says in Hebrews 1 that God is, Jesus is the radiance, the shining out, the display of the glory of God. All through this passage, Jesus is, is everywhere. And in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Again, he's talking about this passage. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about the manna. All drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about this water that was provided. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament looks back on this story in the Old Testament, and he tells us it's all about Jesus. It's all about his wonderful provision for you, that all the way through, Jesus was providing for them. And all the way through, he was there. He was there for them. See, Jesus is the, in the midst of your trial and difficulty, he's always the divine source of provision. He's the one testing you, but he's the one answering you at the same time. He's the one giving you the strength to endure and to persevere. The grace when you fail through it all, Jesus is there in every moment of it. And even all through scripture, Jesus is referred to as a rock. It says in the start of Psalm 95, come let's sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And just as Moses comes at the end of that passage and he comes and he strikes the rock, Jesus was struck for us. Talked in Isaiah 53 about him being pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds we are healed. He was struck for us. And out of him, this living water flows to all of us who are believers in him. See, what we ultimately need is the provision of a savior. That we should be the ones who are on trial. We should be the ones before the judge having to answer for the things we've done mistakes we've made and yet Jesus has stood there for us we should be the ones who get struck down that Jesus was struck for us that we, we, we might have life with him and now he's been struck for us this beautiful water flows into our life Jesus is our provider our protector our presence While we were still helpless, deserving judgment, Christ died for us. Let's pray and we'll sing together. Jesus, we thank you. God, we, we, we thank you, first of all, that you, you test us, that we have a fire in heaven. You, you love us so much. You don't want to leave us as we are, that you want to change us. We thank you that this is 
proof that you love us. <laughs> that we can say, oh, but this is painful, this is hard, but thank you, God, that you love me. That your will is my sanctification, my holiness, my becoming more like you. We thank you that ultimately, when we fail, when we grumble and complain, we come to one who's, who's paid it all for us. Well, we were still helpless. You died for us to give us life, that we might enjoy this living water, this bread of life, this sustenance, this provision, this joy that we find in you. Thank you, Jesus.